Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. and welcome to this episode of Cybersecurity Inside. This is actually part two, where we're specifically talking about intelligent systems research out of Intel Labs. We talked with Lama Nakman already, and she gave us an overview of some of the research that's happening within her lab. Now we're going to dive in with a subset of the lab and three PhD research scientists. We have an anthropologist, a computer scientist, and a user research scientist, all three with us, Don Nafis, Saurav Sahai, and Sinem Aslan. Welcome the three of you to this conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to talk about emotion recognition today and specifically how you get there with context-aware multimodal AI systems. And if that doesn't scare anybody uh, who's listening, then you're probably not paying enough attention. We should be doing these things carefully and with a lot of uh, insight and ethicists and anthropologists, as well as computer scientists all working together. So this is why we have a multidisciplinary crew um, on the call with us today. Let's start with Don, actually. Can you just tell us what is emotion recognition? Uh, essentially, it is the idea that we could build artificial intelligence systems to recognize different emotional states. And typically, there's a notion of input that's external, right? So um, most of the attempts tend to be around facial expression, gaze. Um, there's also some things that you can do linguistically to sort of see in text. Are people writing in a positive manner or a negative manner? Those are the kinds of typical scenarios I see, but I, I leave it to the, the real technical experts to uh, refine that definition. So then I'll ask Saurav actually to just take us one level down on the computer science side and just at, at a high level, and we're, we'll work our way down to more depth here. But what are some of the different kinds of multimodal systems that we're using to recognize these things? Sure, sure, Camille. So emotion recognition technology is a technology where we're using things like, as Don mentioned, uh, facial expressions and uh, physiological sensing to audio sensing uh, using acoustic context, using your, say, for example, how you type on the keyboard, your typing speed and things like that, and takes into account all of these um, sensors to compute uh, emotional states. And emotion um, is a topic of research that has uh, several flavors and several theories. For example, there's a famous uh, scientist, Ekman, who came up with these five basic emotions, happy, sad, uh, neutral, and, and some of these states that typically many systems that we develop or model today try to have data for these emotion categories or the output classes, and then the models can detect these states. Now, going level deeper, emotion recognition is, as I said, a technology, but the actual use cases, for example, in uh, in the driving scenario, in my vehicle, I have this amazing attention assist 
feature that tells me when I'm drowsy. So this system is also using some flavor of sensing to detect, am I alert or not? Okay. And then Sinem, let's hear from you. Can you describe one of the projects that you're working on in the lab in the classroom? Yeah, sure. Uh, So, I mean, in one of the projects using context-aware multimodal AI technologies, we are trying to understand student engagement while they are engaged with uh, digital content on their laptops. When you look at the state of art, majority of the researchers are looking at emotion understanding problem from uh, the perspective of like facial emotions, the mimics that you are making or uh, your eyebrow movement or all of those different things. But here uh, at our lab, we are investigating this problem from more like multimodal kind of perspective because we know that we don't only show our emotions through our facial expressions. And especially when you think about a scenario where like a child is watching an instructional video on a laptop, right? Uh, Probably most of the time, uh, his or her uh, reactions in terms of the facial expressions might be subtle. So this is where we need really the complementary data sources, right? At a high level, we try to understand engagement, but engagement is a multi-componential research construct for us because we know that learning is emotional as much as intellectual. So we are trying to understand whether a student is on task or off task during learning, but at the same time, the other level of Engagement is on emotional engagement, where a student, uh, whether they are confused, bored, or satisfied at any time of learning. So if we combine these two different pillars, we come up with this final engagement state, right? So if a student is on task and satisfied, then we map it as engaged. But if a student is on task, but having some emotional problems, like maybe they are confused or bored, then we map it as maybe engaged. And if a student is off task, then we just map it as like not engaged at all. So these two dimensions gives us this broader perspective. And if you look at how we evaluate emotional states, first of all, we use data from the laptop camera as vision modality. And we also use context and performance data from the content platform. And we extract features, you know, from these two modalities. And we feed these uh, features into our classifiers, which are then fused to provide us the final engagement state. So this is like how we are handling emotional understanding in education research. I've got to take a step back early in this conversation. And, you know, anybody feel free to answer. I'm kind of looking at Don maybe to kick us off on this one. But yikes. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of a yikes factor with that because we're not even just it's it's maybe even uh, scary enough to be on camera or feel like, you know, there's a camera that can monitor your facial expressions, which you may or may not be able to conceal. Now we're talking about all different kinds of sensors that, you know, let's just assume ultimately you can't really have a poker face through all of them. So, I mean, Don, help help me understand, you know, what's kind of going to happen with this culturally and societally and ethically. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's you nail the issue on the head. There's a yikes factor in a number of ways. Um, And I'll, I'll start personally. Right. So. I work in this lab. I enjoy working with my colleagues. I respect what they do. And, you know, I believe Sanam when she says that we can support students in 
making sure that their emotional needs are met, which is, you know, how I understand what Sinem's doing, or at least part of it. Um, at the same time, you know, I'll go off to anthropology conferences and I'll talk about emotion recognition. And the first thing people will say is, but you cannot fundamentally make a claim about somebody's emotional state, right, for, for them, right? I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a power relationship here, right? And, and, you know, they'll go on to sort of say that actually there's a lot more cultural variation mm -hmm. than psychologists might have it and, you know, and sort of on and on it goes, right? So, so we have here like a scientific controversy, right? And I, and I think it's a, a meaningful one and actually working with people who sit on both sides of the controversy. For me personally, it's whiplash, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but the yikes then I think comes in. So, when Sanem says, well, we use multimodality for a reason, right? And, and that reason in part is to get over that anthropologist sense of like, but you can't just read the faces, mm -hmm. right? And I think part of what we're saying here in our lab is no, you can't, right? You have to do something more to try to understand that context. But then the next layer, you know, sort of where my work comes in is to ask, okay, who's in control here, right? And who gets to make that claim about is the student distressed? Is that student not distressed? To what end are we, you know, saying, look, this, this student is on task or not, right? Who's going to win and who's going to lose in that scenario? And how are students going to grow up feeling watched in that way, right? Now, that's not to say that there's not a history of schools and surveillance, that experience of being in class and being watched is not an unfamiliar one, <laughs> despite computers, also a problem, right? But if we, if we ask who's in charge, who benefits, who doesn't, and, and who gets to make these technologies at all, then we can start to unpick, okay, where's the benefits and where's the real risk? So just to add to this kind of perspective, I think I totally understand the concerns around emotional understanding. And I think it's important to contextualize emotional understanding in the usage itself, right? So if you look at how teachers interact with children, they interact with them based on mostly their emotional state. So if they see them confused, they need to take an action, right? And it's part of their day-to-day -day job. And when we give uh, children with laptops, they lose all of the data that they have, which is the body language. Even if the classroom like is full of children and there is one teacher, right? It's really hard for them. This is what we identified from the ethnographic research that we have done. It's really hard for them to understand and monitor their engagement in real time. So in a way, we are making it more efficient. We are not creating uh, some sort of a new data for them. This is the data that they already use on a day-to-day -day basis, but we are making it more effective and efficient for them. If you look at like, a, for instance, a work environment, right? No, I mean, even myself would not be okay with sharing my emotional states with my manager because that's not what she do, right? On a daily day uh, basis, that's an extra information for her. But for a kind of a classroom scenario, it's already part of that context. And what we are doing is to really make it more efficient. Okay, so maybe I will I will buy that on the small scale and the you know individual I guess autonomy to say whether a parent or a, a person to say okay yes you know I think this is going to help me learn better I'm in 
or no thank you, right? But I guess now that we have people in distributed physical environments and we have AI kind of on the back end or in the cloud that can, you know, process this not on this one one-on-one level like you're saying where it's the teacher getting a ping like hey the back row is you've completely lost the back row, you know. Now we're saying, well, AI could like process people in their individual homes and provide information to some like broader platform or application or being in control, I guess, whatever Don's kind of referencing. How do we deal with that kind of a scenario? Again, it depends on the usage, right? How you use these analytics. Uh, So in our case, we are not using it as a summative evaluation of like, okay, this student is 90% engaged, so she will get a A from this class, right? That's not the usage that we are doing. What we are doing is we are sharing these learning analytics with the teacher so that the teacher use them as a baseline for starting the conversations with individual students. And from our own pilots, we have seen how the teachers are utilizing these things, right? Like in one of the pilots, for instance, what we have seen was very interesting. So I would like to share it if that's okay. Um, so like um, the teacher saw the child not so much engaged recently. And uh, she went and approached the student and said, like, I see that you are not really engaged these last couple of days. And she realized that the student uh, started to have a kind of an eye problem. And that was the reason he wasn't like watching the video, but he was still listening to it, right? Because an instructional video, you can either watch or listen it. And, but the models say the student was not like an engaged, right? In this context. So if the teacher just relied on what the models say and say an evaluation, okay, then this student is really problematic, then it's a problem. Right. But here in our usage, we are like uh, asking the teacher to use that information as a starting point to create that conversation. The, the other way around, she doesn't know anything about the students. Right. She doesn't know. Are they struggling? Are they engaged? Are they following me? Like she doesn't have anything to act on. But now she has a baseline information. But of course, there is always a risk, right? Even for the most, how to say, useful technologies we develop, people can use it for the negative purposes. But that's not our intent. This field currently is evolving very fast. And uh, people are aware that uh, we don't want our AI to make decisions or create biases in the mind of, say, the decision makers uh, for, say, children in the case uh, when they are learning in a classroom. One of our collaborators we are working with, they, they are, uh, it's a university, they're creating a digital platform where they're trying to use um, non-intrusive technology, not camera, but some other uh, sensing modality to try to detect whether students are engaged or not. And based on that, they're not informing the teachers about what the students' issues, but how they can improve uh, or how they can uh, be better educators, how they can teach in a better way. What's the idea of active listening? Where is it that kids are getting stuck? And if we can surface these issues also, that's actually very interesting. And, And there are other areas, for example, postpartum depression is an active research area where people have done a lot of research using sentiment analysis and emotion recognition to try to detect whether someone is uh, depressed or going through postpartum depression or not. It's it's all usage-based, and there are definitely many good uses of uh, these technologies. 
if I could jump in for a second, you know, in a sense, what we're talking about is really what makes responsible AI so hard. And it's really pushing in a way at the cutting edge of what responsible AI is. Because some of my, my colleagues right now are asking this question of when do things start to become unethical? And when is intent, in a sense, both the right place to start, but also not the whole story, right? So, I mean, there's a couple of things here. One is if we can satisfy ourselves that, you know, in the example of, of the technology that, that Saravins and I are talking about, if we can satisfy ourselves that the way we've got it designed is doing the right thing and we're going to be net positive here, then part of our job is also to then kind of do that almost adversarial scenario writing where we say, okay, let's put on the red hat in exactly the same way you would in security and say, okay, now what? Now it goes to the customer that whatever it is, and you Mm -hmm. can start to fill in the blanks. And you can start to see, you know, what starts like as a good idea. And then, you know, somebody might actually for totally benign reasons say, all right, well, let's just expand the scope a little bit, right? Let's just add one more feature. Or it doesn't even necessarily think about it. And it's like, well, of course the school is going to want the data, right? That's transparency. And then all of a sudden, what starts was, you know, started out pretty good and carefully done ends up being something that really is quite problematic. And so that's where I think the second thing comes in, which is as a society, you know, we need to be much tougher customers when schools are starting to purchase this stuff. We need to, you know, as the responsible AI community, we need to be supporting them and asking the really hard questions about how does this work? How doesn't it work? What don't we want? What can we switch off? Right. And with that kind of more skeptical customer base, then we can start to make sure that things land where they want to land and don't end up having some mission creep into some territory that I don't think anybody wants. Right. And it might be useful noting there is not a universal standard for privacy at this point, legally, or I mean, literally from a standards perspective, I mean, there isn't one. But I did have a conversation with Claire Vishik, who's a fellow at Intel, um, specifically around privacy and its policy around the world. And it's not the same everywhere. And there's actually not a lot of common standards. There'd be very specific standards for specific things or regional standards. But you're kind of up against that as well. There's a lot of cultural variation in, in what we mean by privacy and when and where would you even want it. I, I have colleagues who do research in Papua New Guinea who literally cannot get away for like an hour because <laughs> the, the villagers think he's going, he's lonely and why would you ever do that, right? So it is very, it's highly relative. I feel like it's important to give users option, right? Like at this stage, if they believe that, for instance, this feature is useful for them. Right, opt-in versus universal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, I have, for instance, have a dialogue system at home and it just listens to me all the time. I know, that, you know, like, but I don't have any other options, at least the one that I know, right? Like to decide on how to use my data kind of a thing. So I think that kind of giving that kind of agency to the users and individual users making those decisions, right? If I see a benefit, then I would opt in. But if I don't, then... I can opt out, right? So 
So, Saurav, can you ground us a little bit more? I know you work on some of the underlying algorithms being computer scientists. What actually are some of these systems? When I talked with Lemma, she did talk about looking at how human bodies interfere with Wi-Fi signals and that we can actually detect movement and presence through Wi-Fi signals. I think everybody's heard of, you know, cameras. There's gesture recognition. There's this natural language processing So can you tell us what the different kinds of sensors are that are getting at emotion recognition? Sure. So I work in the area of multimodal dialogue and interactions. And uh, in this uh, world, we work uh, on conversational AI technologies. So we work on things like multimodal language understanding and generation, dialogue management, and then uh, creating solutions that can... uh, make these interactions, either human-AI interaction or AI-AI interaction, very efficient. So for emotion recognition, we we are looking at, say, audio, vision, and text modality primarily, and also heart rate, BCI, brain-computer interface, and we have uh, typing speed. I mentioned, like, context awareness. How do you interact with your machine, and how can you capture various, uh, what application you're using, What's your, uh, say, speaking rate? What's your typing speed? All of these are uh, relevant to detecting signal-like emotion or emotion in the use case uh, could become, say, your frustration or your confusion or some other signal that is fine-tuned for the actual use case that you're trying to develop. So you're talking about if I start hitting the keys really hard and typing really fast, then you can assume I feel really compelled or maybe angry, or you might have some kind of a subset of emotions, you're narrowing it down. This is not a calm, happy space based on how you're typing. (laughs) You could or you could not, but depending on your baseline. So now if you have been typing calmly most of the time, like, but then suddenly your typing speed goes up quite a lot or you're, you're punching on keys hard. So it's a signal that then with the other context together, you can come up with some, uh, inferences. And more often than not, we still use supervised learning methods. So you have the signal, you have the training data to create Mm -hmm. the actual uh, systems today. So then, yeah, you can make fairly good conclusions about how your typing speed is influencing your affective state in, in a way. Okay, one more question on this front. When you talk about human brain interface, Uh, You're going to have to help me out. I understand like eye movement and gestures of my hands, but now you're connecting sort of directly or indirectly through the brain. Tell us what that is exactly. How do you take, go from, you know, a sensor on a brain to, I can finish that sentence for you. I remember a demo that was that happened more than 10 years ago when I was at Georgia Tech and there was a person sitting on a machine and he was thinking about getting a coffee, mug of coffee. And there, there was this robot that just by magic gave that coffee to, to the person. So just like that, neural interfaces are getting mature enough with a lot of sensing that happens with EEG sensors. You can now create systems that can detect single words and and some characters that you're thinking about. So this is a nice link to the language modeling work that's happening today that already is very powerful today that can help you generate predictive text, say the next words or autocomplete that we all have seen in, in certain commercial email systems today. So 
So a lot of interesting work is happening also in our lab where we are trying to connect EEG signal with word prediction technology to help patients, people who are in locked-in states, uh, complete their sentences even faster. I can think the word coffee. At this point, maybe that's from a a filtered set of words or a provided set of words that the computer could recognize, but I don't know. Could I just think unicorn and it would get it? Or is it more like it's going to anticipate that I'm at work and my thoughts are going to be around something from, you know, cybersecurity to coffee. And I think coffee and it, it can recognize that word because I'm lighting certain signals in my brain that I think about when I think coffee so today's technology is limited. Mostly it's a limited set of uh, vocabulary and words that we can predict, but there's a lot of work happening that keeps on expanding that list of words that the system can guess. And now linking it with context, linking it with what you said just before can allow you to even further expand your uh, vocabulary. As an anthropologist, I can, um, again, this is a little bit of a, a far afield, but one of the things that anthropology really does is it tries to understand what metaphors are people using to understand what it is they're doing. And I do think it's notable that we're in a time where notions of the brain, computer brain interfaces, neuromorphic computing, which is a way of taking inspiration from one understanding of what a brain is, right, to sort of do the hardware right, to sort of labeling everything smart, right? It's sort of interesting that we're kind of in this moment where there's this sort of preoccupation with the human human brain. It's never <laughs> anybody else's brain. It's always the human, yeah. right? Which is sort of an evolution from sort of earlier kind of more machinic notions, right? That like, you know, but the economy is the machine, right? Everything is kind of quite mechanical. So we can sort of see this as a kind of a cultural moment, but it's also a bias in a way, right? Because you think about other values outside of Silicon Valley, right? You might arrive actually at different metaphors that might be more inspirational, ecological metaphors, you know, metaphors to do with kinship or family, or, you know, learn, we can have a nice big laundry list, but it's just notable that there's this, this cultural preoccupation that is driving computing in some directions and not necessarily others. You mean driving computing toward like the human brain and how we're processing and our emotional recognition versus right, some right. other value that might be out there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, Sinem, what would you like to add as kind of a final thought here? Give us something that you think is sort of a hot topic maybe we haven't touched on enough in this conversation. Maybe this bias uh, discussion, uh, because... I think we are also, like, of course, talking about the bias that these machine learning models can produce, but there is also the human bias as well, right? For my own research, I know that from literature, teachers are, for instance, biased towards some kids, right? They always give verbal interventions to those kids, or they always praise certain kids, I mean, some of them at least, right? So there is also human bias involved in these things. And I mean, to me, it might be more dangerous, right? Like I, we can potentially control the bias in machine learning models by controlling the data set that we are <laughs> kind of training them. But on the other hand, there is also the bias that humans do on a day-to-day -day basis. So like, a, how do we balance these two? Are we giving maybe more data to 
get rid of some of the human bias, right? Like that's another thing that I think we should think about. Interesting. You guys, oh my God, such a fascinating conversation. Psychology, anthropology, computer science, all uh, sitting down together in the same lab, but also, you know, like you're saying, Don, you're attending anthropology conferences where other whole conversations are happening and bringing that back into the lab. I think it's it's really interesting. And of course, you you three are a subset of this lab too. I just want to mention this is Intelligent Systems Research Lab, which has many other disciplines as well. Um, and so just really wanted to give a little bit more insight into some of the uh, people on the team and what they're thinking and studying. So uh, Sinem, Saurav, and Don, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.